open up to Ephesians chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 13 through 16. Spurgeon said that like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. Every Christian is born a soldier. It is our destiny to be assaulted, and it is our duty to attack. So that has been the theme of our last few studies and our last few sermons. And uh, again, tonight and next week, as we study Ephesians 6 in Paul's language about how the Christian will and ought to stand firm in the evil day as the inevitable attack of the devil and all of his hordes, all of his demons, his structures of cosmic authority and spiritual power as they are arrayed against the church. Christians and churches must amount a defense and we are enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit as Paul lists out here, the armor of God that is made available for us. Now, I know this has been a, uh, maybe a bit enlightening for some people as we're going through these passages and talking about spiritual warfare. And I don't know whether it's just people being more honest lately or noticing more, but a bunch of people have grabbed me and said, you know, I'll, I'll tell you about the dreams I've been having and their afflictions and this was happening and my, my, uh, this was happening at home the other night and here's the afflictions that I've had recently or, or whether it's, it's sleep paralysis or, the, or the, the visions that have been coming to you or, or, or some things a little bit more on the tame end but no less spiritual warfare, things like increased immediate uh, bouts of temptation that have come back after years of being pretty well controlled. The devil loves to attack. I think as we're going in through this series, uh, uh, he's reminding us of that, and Jesus is reminding us of his own strong defense. Amen? So Ephesians chapter 6, we'll read tonight's verses. We're going to be looking at uh, the shield of faith tonight. <clears throat> the Lord speaks through his word, and our word tonight reads like this. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, this is tonight's section, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. May God bless his own word in our midst this afternoon. Tonight's section is all about the shield of faith that God makes available to us. It is the assumption of the Christian, as we've already said, that you will be attacked. But I want to say this to, to our church, and even more so to individuals, that as you make yourself more and more of an asset and more and more of a weapon in the hands of God to wield against the kingdom of darkness, as you do more and more damage against the kingdom of the devil, so also the attacks against you will increase. It's, it's, it's often the situation that I've talked to, maybe it's young people or new Christians or, or older Christians that have had a new, a new fight, a new spiritual life and vitality to their Christian walk. And they'll, you know, they'll get more, more involved in evangelism or more involved in standing firm on God's word or in discipling other people or, or serving the local church and, and, and those sorts of things. And, and then they start realizing that as they do that, you know what, I, I guess I, I'm, this isn't my calling from God actually because I've started to do it and you know what? What? This problem came up, my car broke down, my family members weren't happy about it, I was falling, you know, I had these temptations come back. There was just all sort of hurdles to jump over and walls I couldn't get across. I guess that's just God's sign. He doesn't want me being this active. And it is just precisely the other way around. The more of a weapon you are against the kingdom of darkness, expect Christians especially young guys who, who, who feel called to the ministry in the future, expect that the more damage you do against, kingdoms, against the kingdom of darkness, the more attacks you will receive. And those attacks can be in all kinds of different ways. So we see tonight, Paul say, in all circumstances, take up that shield of faith. In all circumstances, Spurgeon speaks on this and he says, the Roman shield, which is probably what Paul has in mind, the, the Roman shield was, was not the little shield that they had, but the word is the, is the larger door-sized shield. That's actually where it gets its name from in the Roman. Uh, the door-sized shield was about four and a half feet, couple, about two feet wide, and it could protect the whole man. 
And the fact that Paul says here, in all circumstances, take up the shield, hints to us that there is not a single spiritual attack that you can come under from the devil where faith will not bring some measure of defense against the attack. That, that is to say that the shield protects the whole body in battle, and so also faith has some, some kind of defensive mechanism for all parts of the whole man. It's not as if we're saying, well, you know, if it's an attack on doctrine, then you use your mind. And if it's an attack on your relationships, you go and use your heart. And if it's an attack on your mental health, then, you know, you use something else. But only when it's a demonic person uh, coming up against you and trying to throw a fiery spear through your Bible, then, then you use faith. No, rather, what we see is that Paul says, in all circumstances, use the shield that protects the whole man. Will faith have some measure of effect of defense against mental health issues? Yes. Now, I'm not saying that God promises whatever your health is, that if you have faith enough, then you can be saved and, and entirely healed. Not, not the truth. What I'm saying is that faith will have some tremendous effect on even mental health issues. Will have some tremendous way to defend you when you are going through physical health. Now, I'm not saying you will be physically healed necessarily. I'm saying faith will defend you against the devil's attacks in the midst of physical sickness. Whether it is relational sickness or financial terror or spiritual attack in the more, in the more uh, paranormal kind of realm. Whatever it may be, faith in Christ, a trust in God's promises will have an enormous effect no matter what you're going through. I don't want you to come up to me after the sermon and say, you probably didn't think of my trial and my attack. Here's why trusting Jesus just isn't really enough in this one, and we need the exorcism ministry, and we actually need an anointing oil, and this is what, don't do it. Don't tap me on the shoulder and try. Whatever you're going through, you will be immensely defended and helped if you have a stronger faith in God's promises, period. In all circumstances, Paul says, no matter what you're going through, his commandment is pick up the shield of faith. But we need to do some work on defining faith. Faith is a trust, a receiving, and a believing the promises of God in Scripture. Faith is trusting the promises of God in Scripture. Now, that's very important because faith is not faith if you are trusting God to do something he never promised to do. If you start coming out and saying, I've got the faith that all of my sicknesses and all of your sicknesses and all of our church's sicknesses will be healed, hallelujah, amen. It's not just uh, uh, misdirected and foolish. It's not even faith. I can't even say, well, commendable, you've got great faith, you just misdirected. No, you don't even have faith. Because faith is resting in an actual written down promise of God. If the promise isn't there, you're very excited and you're passionate, but you don't have faith. And so we need to realize that faith, which is this defensive mechanism in the spiritual fight, needs to know the word and especially the promises of God. Faith trusts the promises of God as they are in Scripture and appropriates them. And there's three kinds of faith I would want to distinguish between. There's, there's the all-important saving faith, and then there's the sanctifying grace, uh, faith, rather, the sanctifying faith which, which trusts in God's promises in the, in the Scripture about the Spirit being with us and about God's laws being good and, and helps us along. And there's defensive faith, like we'll talk about tonight, being that faith which trusts God's promises about our spiritual state and our circumstances and our trials and the battle and all of that. But the first kind of faith, the most important foundational form of faith, without which there is no true forms of the other faith, is saving faith. Now, now Scripture speaks of saving faith. The Bible speaks of true faith, God-given faith. Uh, theologians use the language of saving faith. And it is not spoken of in such a way because you have such a strong faith or such a pure faith or such a, a valuable faith that God sees it and therefore gives you salvation. Saving faith is not called saving faith because it has saving power. Rather, saving faith is saving faith because it simply believes the promises that God gives to us about Jesus Christ for our salvation. The saving part of saving faith is not the faith, but what that faith is in. 
And so God publishes promises to us in the scripture. He, he tells us we're sinners. We all stand as condemned, guilty rebels indebted to his justice. And that he, if he was to do what is merely right and good and just, he would send us all to hell with punishment and destruction forever. But in his grace, in his goodness, he has sent his own, his own self, his own son, in, in his own nature and yet into our nature to be the God-man, Jesus Christ, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we should have died for in our place and for our sin. And then God rose him from the dead, seated him up in heaven, so that now Jesus to his apostles, his apostles in scripture and to other Christians, and then down through every generation of Christianity until the present day, God's promises have been, have been echoing through history Anybody that gives up on your own self-righteousness, which will condemn you, anybody who repents of your sinful lifestyle and looks to Jesus, believes the promises of his life, death, and resurrection, you rest in that, you will have eternal life and complete free forgiveness. That's the promises of God about Christ, which saving faith rests in and receives that salvation. Now then sanctifying great a faith, we said, is the faith that, that grows us in holiness. But defensive faith is the faith that trusts God's promises about our spiritual warfare and lives in light of them. Now I want you to turn to chapter 3, verse 17 of the same book, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Because as I've just described faith in that way, I fear that I made it sound too intellectual or or merely mental. In other words, that faith is an understanding, a, a, a mental, intellectual understanding of the facts of God's promises, and then a mental assent to them that says, yes, those are true. Now, how that connects to defensiveness and, 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 and protection and a shield in the spiritual realm would be pretty hard to prove. But rather, faith is more, it is more active it is more organic, it is more spiritual than merely a mental trust in truth. Look at what verse 17 of chapter 3 says. Verse 16, he's been saying that the Spirit, that he's praying for the Ephesians, and he says, I pray that the Spirit strengthens your heart, strengthens you on the inner man, this is what verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, Paul doesn't just see faith as a mental recognition of God's promises that says, I agree. Rather, Paul sees faith as a receiving of the promises of God such that Christ dwells in our hearts more and more with ever-increasing power and presence according to our faith. So the faith is, is not itself the shield. We're going to talk about the, the shield of faith, and this passage says that, but but the shield of faith is not faith itself. Rather, as we read in the call to worship, as the Old Testament says, God himself is our shield. Christ himself in heaven, in whom our souls are, are united and unified, our righteousness, our sanctification, our source of life, that Jesus, he himself is our shield. And what faith does is not mount its own defense. It is not merely a mental understanding. It's neither of those things. Rather, by faith, by trusting in God's promises about the spiritual warfare we're in, Christ more increasingly dwells in us by his presence and empowers us and defends us against spiritual attacks. This is a deeply personal matter, faith. It, it's not just you and the words on the page. It's you and Jesus. It's you receiving more of Jesus' influence and power and protection in your life by your believing his words about himself in Scripture. It's a deeply relational, spiritual matter, this faith that we're speaking of. Therefore, the more you trust in the promises of God, the more you will have Jesus' personal presence with you on the battlefield. Jesus is not, as some churches will speak of him, he is not merely an energy to be channeled. Right? He's not merely a, a kind of a force that we can activate 
by reading the promises of God in a certain order or in a certain language or in a certain volume or repetition. He's not merely a, a force to be channeled or activated by a certain prayer. Pray this prayer with me, church, and, and we'll see God do these. He's not merely a force to be activated with the click of a chant. We're, we're, we're not pagans. That's not how Jesus works. He doesn't merely hear the chanting of a song or, or if the bass gets deep enough or if the lights go down deep enough, if there's enough smoke coming off the stage and if the guy is in enough of a, an attractive blazer and the, and the female backup singer is in enough of a, of a track, you, you, know, you know the types I'm talking about. That if, that if we can do church and, and manufacture the worship set just right, then the force of Jesus will be activated in your life. And it's just nonsense. Rather, in accordance to your knowledge of God's promises, your trust in the person and character of Jesus, so Jesus will be with you on the battlefield and he himself will be the shield that extinguishes the darts. Now, in light of this, since we've just said faith is trusting God's promise, you need to trust God's promises about spiritual warfare, thus you will be strengthened. I want you to go to Romans 8. Here's what we've got. The next 10 minutes or so, we're going to have eight promises out of Romans 8 for us to appropriate. May I? I'm rhyming more and more. I'm coming up with this on the spot. For you to appropriate in your time of spiritual attack. And, and again, uh, some of you may be on the more, on the more uh, 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 extreme end of it. And, you, and you've received the kinds of spiritual attacks that most people would probably check you into a white padded room if you told them about it. Others of you, it is, it is more internal and it is more darkness of the soul. And some of you, it is a lot more ordinary. It's the constantly broken car. It's the constantly emptied finances. It's the constantly accusing in-laws. Whatever it may be. Wherever you might be receiving the attacks of the devil that are lit by the fires of hell to extinguish your faith, these are promises in Romans 8 that we need to hold fast to. So let me open up to Romans 8. First promise will be in verse 1. And the reality here is that if you have faith in Jesus, no condemnation that the devil ever claims against you will ever condemn you. No accusation the devil ever throws at you in his moments of spiritual attack, reminding you of your most gross, heinous sins. Your, maybe your loved one or your, your ex-friend or your friend who, who lists your failures to your face. There is no accusation that stands against you. If you have faith in Jesus, that will ever genuinely be able to accuse you before God. Romans 8 verse 1. We love this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no accusation will ever stand. Now, you need to hold that fast in your times of spiritual uh, attack. Secondly, the next promise will come from verse 11. And this reality says this, that the Holy Spirit with you can enable you to overcome the devil in righteousness, whatever the attack is against you. Here's what verse 11 says. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The reality is that no matter the temptation, the, the temptuous, disgusting smorgasbord that the, that the devil puts out in front of you and just tempts you to taste, no matter how, how locked in a single room with the devil you think you may be, no matter how helpless your temptuous situation or overpowered you might think your enemy may be against you, no matter what, no matter the spiritual attack or situation, if you have faith in Christ, then who dwells in you is the spirit that rose Jesus' dead body to infinite glorious life. Now, if he can accomplish that, he can help you overcome any amount of devilish temptation that may ever be thrown at you. If you have faith in Jesus, you have the spirit that can get you through any tempting situation. The third promise to hold fast in your spiritual attack is that the spirit within you marks you as a child of God and gives you child rights to call on God for help. Look at Romans 8, verses 15. Uh, yes, verse 15. 
you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you have faith in Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. And therefore, whatever dilemma or or horrible situation the devil may back you into and have over you, at any point you have the spirit in you that marks you out as being allowed at any moment to merely utter the name of God and have his ear directly turned towards you for help. That That is the power of the spirit of adoption that enables us to cry out to God as Father in prayer. Whatever your situation, you have God's ear because you have his Holy Spirit. Number four, look at verse 18. The reality here is this. Nothing the devil subjects you to in this battle will ever matter to you in glory. Verse 18 says this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, note what Paul doesn't say. Well, note first who's, who's saying it. Paul, the guy who, who walks, church history tells us, with a bad limp because his back doesn't bend properly because it's entirely scar-tissued from the times that he got whipped with cat of nine tails. His flesh on his back got turned into jelly, and just as it healed over, he had it done again. And then just as that scarred and scabbed up, he had it done a third time, and then after healing that time, he had it done a fourth time. And then that healed, and he had it done a fifth time, okay? So this guy is like a woman in her 80s that is pregnant as far as bending over goes. He has no chance because his back is taut with scar tissue. He has inflexibility. In fact, Scripture, uh, uh, history also tells us that he walks with this horrible penguin kind of waddle because he has these, these terribly bowed legs by being beaten with rods on the back of his knees so many times. And it gets better. He had bung eyes, which kind of looked different ways at different times. He had, he had bad sight, probably had a, had, a, had, a, had a bug eye sticking out at one point. Church history does tell us he had a monobrow. That is not because of the afflictions. That's just probably why he was single, but the, but the eyes, the eyes, he had been beaten so often, struck so many times that, that likely that is why he had such terrible handwriting, as we see in Galatians, and, and such terrible sight. Paul has been constantly afflicted, assaulted, and abused, spiritually and physically, and everything in between, and he says, know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I compared them. I compared my sufferings to the glory that Jesus told me I'm going to get, and in the scales, the glory won out. He doesn't say that. He says it would be an insult to the glory if I even got out those scales and compared them. They're not even worth comparing. I don't even think of them. The moment my mind goes to the glory that will one day be revealed to us, I forget about everything that's happened to me. The scars on the back. There is a day coming, no matter what wounds the devil afflicts against you, whether the death of loved ones, your own loss of dear relationships, persecutions, loss of finances, sacrifices you've had to make for the kingdom because the devil's attacks require it. Whatever it may be, whatever you have lost blood over, you won't even remember it in glory. It won't matter to you. Look at verse 28. This is the fifth promise. Nothing that the devil throws at you is outside God's plan. Verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Because God's calling to you in salvation was to come into Christ and be saved and then be sanctified until you get glorified into heaven and receive your full inheritance, since that's God's purpose for you, to get saved, sanctified, then glorified, therefore, nothing can happen to you by the devil's hand or otherwise that is not achieving God's purpose for you. The promise of Romans 8, for you, whatever situation you go through, whatever, whatever trial the devil is pressing down upon you, whatever temptation may surround you, whatever the spiritual attack in the evil day, you need to know this, whether it be church split, family split, marriage split, or anything else, you need to remember none of this, none of this is outside of God's perfect plan. 
as, uh, as the Puritans used to say, the devil is God's devil. He still belongs to, he's still on God's leash. The sixth promise we will see in verse 33 to verse 34. And it's this, God will never judge you for your failings and weaknesses in the day of battle. I'm not some naive pastor that's standing up here thinking, because I preached on fighting the, the spiritual battle, none of you are ever going to ever sin when the evil day comes, right? 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 <laughs> no. I'm not the pastor that is dumb enough to think that because I preached on it, I will therefore never make the mistake in the spiritual day of battle. Rather, the reality is that, 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 that we are able to stand firm. We are exhorted to stand firm. We don't have an excuse if we don't stand firm. We must be exhorting each other to stand firm. And I expect that increasingly we will. But even on the best days, when we stand firm against a distraction, against a sin, against a wolf, whatever it may be that this church and individuals within it stand firm against, even within that, even within the victory, there will be sins, there will be hints of cowardice, there will be, there'll be a lack of prayerlessness, there will be covetousness and, and jealousy and bad motivations, no matter how clear the victory is. And the point of verse 33 is, even... When you sin and are weak and fail and maybe even turn and run cowardly in the day of battle, though they are sins and you could have done otherwise, you should have stood firm, even when you don't, God does not find you, pin you up for war crimes and accuse you and judge you because of your weakness. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Why in the world would God find his people, his elect, that he justified, failing in the day of battle, and then charge us? He can't. He's the one that justified us. And Paul's argument is obviously from the greater to the lesser. If God justified us, if Jesus died for us, who the heck can condemn you? Whose voice matters? No one's. And in fact, that's where the fear usually lies is, but, but won't God charge me? And the promise of Romans, I mean, I would think normally, yes. Yes, you fail in the evil day. You allow your church to, to see sin. You get distracted on the mission. You, you be the reason of demonic footholding and infiltration and false doctrine into your church. Yeah, I would think that the king of all glory would hold you accountable, judge you for it, and get rid of you from his ranks. And then I read the scripture, and the gospel is better news than I come up with. And it says, no, you are justified. You are justified sinner before you are a soldier. And as a justified person, God will never charge you for your weaknesses. Here's promise number seven. You are victorious. This is in verse 37. You are victorious. You are on the winning side. I know this just sounds like a positive affirmation, what I'm saying right here. It's, it's not. It's gospel affirmation. But let, let, let me say it. You are victorious. You are on the winning side. I just feel like I need to say it with a big Texas grin and a promise of if you sow your financial seed into my ministry. No, nah, let, me, let me get through it. <laughs> you are victorious. You are on the winning side. No matter how dark the days look for the cause of godliness. Verse 37. Let's read verse 35, then verse 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine? What about nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37. Nope. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you are in Christ, then you are in the super conqueror. You are in him who has defeated every enemy and has the greatest victory being worked out through history that is imaginable. You are on the winning side because you're in Christ, who is literally the victory. Now, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that in Christ you are conquerors. That's what the optimistic, uh, uh, happy, smiley, prosperity gospel types want to say. They think the Bible says you're a conqueror, which would read like this. 
Shall tribulation or nakedness or danger or persecution or sword, shall they separate you from Christ? No, because they won't even happen to you. That's conquering. When every enemy is just instantly done away with. That's not Jesus. That's not us. We're more than conquerors. Let me tell you what happens when Jesus is more than a conqueror. He doesn't get rid of those things so they can't touch you. He lets them touch you, and you know what? They're on his payroll. They stay alive, they keep attacking you, and every time they do, they're fulfilling his purpose for you. He's more than a conqueror. He doesn't even need his enemies dead for them to be defeated. Everything they do is for our own good. You are on the winning side because you're in Christ. In the final day, all this talk these days of, you know, be on the right side of history... You know, the culture's progressing and morality is, is developing. You want to be on the right side of history, don't you? you go, yeah, I do. But history, history ends with Jesus coming back and killing a lot of people. That's the end of history I'm looking forward to. That's the end of history I need to be on the right side of. The right side of history is being on the sheep side, that had faith in Jesus and obeyed his commandments side, not the progressing along with the, the carcass of the world side. And number eight, no attack of the devil can separate you from God's love in Jesus. Verse 38 and 39. I am sure, I hope you are as sure as Paul is, ladies and gentlemen. I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, that's what he's mentioned in Ephesians 6, the cosmic rulers, the, the, the spiritual beings, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, that's what he mentioned in Ephesians 6, the cosmic rulers and spiritual powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is no attack, no matter how strong, how all-encompassing, how dark your entire life may feel, how intensely depressing it may be, how much joy he takes away from you, how alone he makes you. Nothing that the devil can attack you with and all of his hordes, no matter how many generations it lasts, no matter how, many, how few Christians there are in the land, nothing is ever able to separate a single one of God's chosen people from the love of Christ. No one is ever able to topple Christ off his throne at all. These are the promises of God in Romans 8 towards us. And, and, and my, my aim for you as a, as a pastor is that you will then know these things, remember these things, and in the moment as you're, as you're going through this Ephesians series and you're, you're praying that God would increase your sensitivity to the devil's attacks, not so that you can cast demons out of guitar strings that break and sniffles that come up, no, but so that you can be aware of the devil's schemes, which is what Paul commands, that you might be aware of his schemes, you're praying that, and as God opens your eyes to the attacks he's bringing against you because of the fruit Christ seeks to bring through your life, you would then appropriate these promises, trust in these promises so that your shield stands strong and the fiery darts of the devil are extinguished on contact. Go back to Ephesians 6 now with me. After speaking of faith in this way, which needs to trust the promises, and thus we will be defended by the presence of Jesus, we see that Paul calls the attacks of the devil the flaming arrows of the evil one. And this speaks to the, 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 the multifaceted danger of the devil's attacks against us. It's kind of a cheat to use firing arrows, but you don't even have to be that accurate. You can miss them, doesn't matter, because the wall behind them is going to engulf them in flames. So, so the devil may not have your particular most, most tasty little temptation in front of you, but don't worry, there's secondary effects, he'll get you somehow. It's that if your shield is not up, maybe the dart hits you, the, the arrow strikes deep, but it's not a mortal wound, okay? But the, the clothes on fire now, that is a mortal wound. The, the devil has these primary, secondary, tertiary ways of attacking us that, that we can't dive into and know all of how they, they will all come, what they will all look like, or how they all work. What we know is that faith, which brings Christ's presence into our life, can extinguish them. The... the, the uh, the, the, the makeup of the shield, of the Roman shield, was one of linen surface 
and then a leather hide over the front of it. And that's probably where Paul is getting this idea. It was designed that way by the Romans because in ancient warfare, they would strike flaming arrows towards people, they, uh, b- b- towards soldiers. They would strike into wooden shields and then burn them. But the Romans had designed this linen leather layer so that it would extinguish the fiery darts of their enemies. And so Paul picks up on that. Now the, the question becomes, let's think about these fiery darts of the devil. What might they be? What, what could a spiritual attack be against you in such a way that Paul would call it a fiery arrow? Here's some examples, and they're categorical. So there, there could be a hundred other ones closely related. Firstly, The fiery darts of the devil could be an injection of an evil thought into your mind that you had not previously given given leeway to. An injection, a, a disgusting evil thought. It could be the giving of harrowing, fearful dreams that haunt you. It could be a flood of doubt against your salvation or against the truthfulness of the Bible, against the the trustworthiness of God. A flood of doubt. It could be a a loss of all hope in the future so that you become utterly depressed. Nothing will be solved. Nothing will ever give joy again. Nothing will see the sunlight of God's countenance. It is all bleak. It could be that the fiery darts of the devil is an intense feeling of guilt about your sins, some that you committed, some that you never did. I mean, the devil's a liar. He'll, he'll make you feel bad for stuff you never did. You'll assume that you deserve to feel that anyway. He, he lies to us. He, he, he colors history wrongly. He makes us think fondly of his tyranny while at the same time feeling so deathly guilty. So, so that may, may be a way that you've experienced that. The, an increased intense guilt over past sins that, that previously you've felt forgiven for. You've trusted Christ for the justification from, and yet he brings it back. Or the devil might send the flaming arrow of an intense, seething hatred towards others, especially Christians. The body of Christ cannot cannot live while its organs and members despise one another. The devil might, might throw that into your heart, give to you an intense hatred towards other people in the local body. He may give an intense, sudden anger about things you can't control. Something that is entirely out of your hands, and yet you feel so passionate about it that you don't pray, you don't seek the Lord, you are burning. Such a thing is crippling for the Christian and not encouraging. Or it may give, he may give a kind of a, kind of a visual dart, a, a fiery dart that catches your eye, gentlemen. Uh, uh, all the, well, you're, hit, you're sitting here reading Proverbs and Psalms and, and John Owen on how to kill sexual lust in your heart and then what parks right in front of you, a city council bus with some enormously sexualized advertisement on it right in front of you. Maybe a fiery dart of, of a video that is appearing on any one of our screens can be the sight of somebody's something else that we really want. The, the covetousness just grows within us. They, they pull up in the car you've been dreaming about. They, they, they have the, the wedding at the location you wanted since you were a six-year-old girl. They, they get the, the dress you've been eyeing off and saving up for. They, 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 they get tickets to the game that you wished you could but never could afford. They, they have something that you wish you wanted. They pursue the person you had a secret crush on. Whatever it may be, I don't know. But every one of us has uh, these flaming darts may come that we see something that in, immediately inspires and ignites in us a deep covetousness which Paul has told us is idolatry. Each one of us must be aware of these kinds of things and know that the faith in the promises we were speaking about earlier are able to extinguish each one of those. The the temptation comes. The the wicked hatred comes. The the visual pops up in our mind, whatever it may be. The the haunting darkness or paranormal activity. And we remember, the spirit is within me who rose Jesus from the dead. Sinning does not need to be an option for me right now. There is protection for me in Jesus Christ. We recite those promises. Remember those promises. Hide behind the Christ in those promises. And I think sort of as we move to a close, there's probably something to this to this language around bow and arrow, to this language about the arrow that is attacking, especially spiritually so. Because we remember, if you remember back to Acts chapter 19, 
If you remember back to, to, to what we've spoken about in the, in the history of the Ephesian church, Paul had been there 10 years earlier, planting it, preaching there, evangelizing, debating, Bible lecturing in the city for over two years. And, and enormous revivals broke out, so much that the, 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 a whole huge slog of black magic uh, uh, type of uh, 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 adherence had come out of that and come into the Christian church and they burned all their books. So the pagans are angry. The, 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 the hippies, the, the new age occultists, they're angry. And then over on this side of thing, you had so many Artemis worshippers. Artemis was the great uh, god of the Ephesians. You had so many worshippers of her that, that got converted and gave their life in worship to Christ that they stopped buying the silver idols to worship her. The silversmiths were going out of business. The entire city's economy was being flipped on its head and rearranged because of the preaching of the gospel. Here's what else you know as an ancient Christian and as, an, as a member of ancient society, you know that when you move to a city, you owe the God of that city obeisance and respect. You owe the politicians who serve that God, you owe them obedience and honor or the gods start coming for you. They start cursing you. They start killing your family members. They start crossing all of your business endeavors and attacking you on the open seas. This is how the ancient mind imbibed the idea of spiritual realities. Here's what's so interesting. You've got this church in Ephesus filled with ex-Artemis worshippers. And in the, uh, and Artemis's imagery, the, the way she was depicted was this large statue of a woman holding a bow and arrow drawn. Here's the church wondering. She has some spiritual power, this art. Like, we've seen them do miracles there. We've seen them attack people and curse people and, and take people. Should we be afraid that as we've run out of Artemis' territory, as we've rejected her kingdom and, and held fast to Christ, should we be afraid that some of these darts are coming? I think Paul is, uh, is pastorally uh, uh, being sensitive to them and saying, I get it, I know how it feels. I, I think some of us might even be similar as we've come out of the, the cultic, demonic environment of, of Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormonism or, or New Ageism or occultism or paganism or spiritual paranormal kind of stuff that we've been involved in in the past. And you may be feeling, I'm, I'm in Christ now, I'm here at church, but, but they've got my name. They've, they've got my contact details. They made me sign up to it. They've got my credit card details, that's for sure. But, but, but I know that, that those demons, they know me. They, they've seen me. They've, what should we think? And, and I think, yes, they, they know you. They've got your name. They would love to do harm to you, and they will try. And they can. Paul doesn't say you won't ever get hurt. Paul doesn't say they have no power to attack or inflict or, or afflict you, but rather that you have a shield that can keep them at bay no matter the attack that they throw at you. No matter the Christian's background, no matter the attacks of the devil, no matter what, they have faith, which John, 1 John 4, 1 John 4, John the Apostle was also a, a pastor in Ephesus, it seems, his history tells us. He says this, he says that our faith is not merely a belief, but that our faith is a weapon. 1 John 5, 4 says, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. He overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Not our strength, not our numbers, not our politics, not even our argumentations. Our faith. Our holding fast and trusting in the promises of God which appropriates the presence and power of Jesus. This is what Calvin said. It is indeed true that our warfare continues through life, that our conflicts are daily, no, no, that they are new every day, and various battles are at every moment on every side stirred up against us by the enemy. But as God does not arm us only for one day, and since faith is not merely for one day, but is the perpetual work of the Holy Spirit in us, we are already now partakers of victory as though we had already conquered. The battle's every day, but the Spirit who is with us every day arms us with faith that we partake in the victory that Christ has won. Hebrews 11 verse 33 and 34 says this, it listing the, the, great, the, the great marvelous things that God did through people who believed in him. In the day of spiritual battle, Hebrews 11.33 says this. Through faith, these people conquered kingdoms, 
enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, becoming mighty in war and putting foreign armies to flight. Is what Gil said. Speaking about the, about the lions that they stopped the mouths of by faith, Gil, John Gill says, A lion was slain by Samson and another by David, but the most remarkable instance of stopping the mouths of lions surely was in the den when Daniel was cast in. And this may be an encouragement of faith to the people of God when they are in the midst of men who are comparable to lions and that they may in that moment imitate them not to fear the devouring lion Satan. As Daniel stopped the mouth of lions by faith, so also when our soul is in the midst of lions, we may by faith stop those mouths, stop the arrows, extinguish them and stand firm in our faith. Spurgeon preaching on this, on this passage and about the shield of faith. He, he, he narrows in on the, the most important kind of faith you need, which we spoke about, is the saving faith, is the faith that rests in God's promises about Jesus for salvation. And, and he tells this story. He was, he was evangelizing a man that, that had, through his, through his wickedness and sin and abject depravity, got himself to a point in life that he was so seared that he was so, so aware of his guilt, but unable to believe that salvation was ever going to be offered to him. He knew that it was real, that hell was real, but that he would never be able to partake in salvation. He didn't have what it took, he's told Spurgeon. He didn't have what it took to receive salvation. And Spurgeon cracks open one of his, his usual imageries, his analogies. He goes, well, that's the great thing about faith, friend, is that it's like an empty hand. You don't have to do something with your hand. You don't have to grab something, work something, present something, pay with something with your hand. You, you simply put out the open hand and receive by faith. And this man said, well, that's no good. I don't have the spiritual strength to extend an arm. I don't have even the faculty to receive into an open hand. Spurgeon said, well, well that's okay. I've got another analogy. But faith is like, is like a mouth. And, and, and the mouth does not add flavors or nutritions to food. It merely passively receives it. And so faith is like that mouth that simply receives the, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, onto the tongue and swallows it into the body for nutrition. You don't have to go and get it, cook up a good feast. Jesus is the meal. Can you but swallow? And this man says, well, that's no good. I, I don't even have the means necessary to take the medicine being offered. I can't even do that. So he said, well... Well, friend, well, friend, faith, faith is really nothingness. Faith is just an empty, vacuous void that receives the fullness and infinity and grace of Jesus. So, so do you have a void? Are you empty? And at that, the man's eyes lit up. And he says, I am exactly that. I have nothing to myself. And if I'm filled with nothing, then I'm filled with a vacuum. I can receive Jesus if he fills even the vacuumous void. And that is the grace of faith. That's the blessing, the power of faith is that you don't need to. If you are a sinner, if you're outside of Jesus, if you're not a Christian and you're not familiar with gospel language or the Bible, you're going to hell. God loves you and has done everything necessary to save you from hell through Jesus. All you need to do, be a void, be a vacuum, be an empty stomach that receives the blessings of the gospel. Simply sit there, hear the gospel promise of God through Jesus and say, yes, Jesus saved me. I'll receive that into my vacuumous soul and you will be filled with all the promises of God. Let's pray. Father God, spiritual warfare and the demonic attack against the church is often either overdone, over-extremized, or neglected for the sake of, of, being, of being reasonable. Well, God, we, we are Bible people. We, we obey what we hear from your scripture, and you tell us to be aware, to be watchful, to be wary of the attacks of the devil, which are real. Father God, we don't obsess over the attacks of the devil. We, we don't obsess over the darts lit on fire coming for our hearts. Rather, we obsess about your promises in the word about Jesus. 
We, we focus on that. And, and by so focusing, Jesus becomes our shield. I pray, Lord God, that those under, under very ordinary seeming attacks that, that just feel like their life is going to pieces, just, just, just feel like the, that they've made bad decisions and it, it's just so ordinary, would you, would you enable them to realize that by faith they can receive your promises and stand firm in all the temptations they face? For those who are, in fact, being victims of more intense, spiritual, kind of even paranormal-type seeming attacks, Lord God, may the same be the case. Would they draw near to you and see the devil flee? Would they simply make good on these ordinary means of grace and, and, and believe the scriptural promises and have Christ their shield against the attacks? Father God, would you enable us to not be a church that is distracted, that has that has a, a, a clown show and a, and a circus show in the ranks so that we forget the warfare we are called to. Father God, it is not ultimately about the putting downs of demons or the, or the praying down strongholds that we might obsess over. It is ultimately about the preaching of the gospel among the nations that Jesus would save all of his chosen people. Please keep us focused on that. Father God, for those who are in our midst and they are, they're here, they, they are one of us, but they're not of us. Those who, who are here in the same place, but are still headed for destruction. Those who are here and outside of Jesus. Those who are false Christians or, or just non-Christians by profession. We ask, Lord God, that tonight would be the night that their heart is broken, that their, their faith is placed in Jesus Christ, that they repent of their sins, and that they are exchanged out of, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of your own dear son, Jesus Christ. Please do this in our midst, Lord God, to the glory of your name, through the person of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.